Revelation 11. And uh, so it's continuing this, uh, this vision that John is, is having. And again, a reminder that he's talking here about the, the woes that are going to come upon the earth and then how, how it is that uh, the Christian response or the, or the Christian survival of that is. So we'll look at verses 1 and following. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So how many of you would like to be one of those two witnesses (laughs) right now? Well, we better read further because I don't think you're going to want to be one of those two witnesses. All right. So let's take a look at what uh, possible meaning could, uh, could be derived from this. So the first thing that he's, he's told, that John is told, is to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. The sort of key phrase there is with its worshipers. And so what this has to do with is the idea that God is showing careful attention to the state of his church and in particular, the people of his church. Okay, now you have to kind of recall a little bit of your Old Testament uh, architectural history. It's good that we have an architect with us here this morning, so you can verify the uh, veracity of this, uh, Gerald. Okay, but so what he's saying is, yeah, I know that was real co- committal there. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so what he's saying is, is that he's noting that there is a difference between the outer court and the inner court in which this this uh, measuring is to take place. So what do you remember about the construction of the temple and the difference between the courts? There was an outer court that was designed for Gentile worshipers, uh, uh, non-Jewish worshipers. There was also a court that was available for women, so women could come and worship. And then there was the inner court that was designed for men to come. And then the Holy of Holies was... That was the priest and most notably the high priest could only be that. So they had these different courts, all right? Do you remember the story of Jesus cleansing the temple? Do you remember that story? Okay. Uh, where were the money changers and the animal people and all that? Where were they located? Which court in the temple? Do you remember? It was one of the outer courts, but in particular, it was the court of the Gentiles, all right? Now, what a slap in the face for Gentiles to be, uh, have to come in and try to worship, and here we have uh, to contend with all the noise and the smell and all that stuff that went along with that, all right? So, and then that's part of what Jesus got angry about was that it wasn't just the sound and the smell, but it was the fact that here you placed all of this 
into the court of the Gentiles and maybe bled, bled over in terms of the court of the women. So, so what he's saying here in, ter- in, in making that distinction is that he's saying that even as the, even as the, the church of God, the temple, which is the people of God, even as they are being, uh, have to submit to the difficulties that are going on in the earth, God still has special concern and care for us, even as we go through all those things. It kind of fits with, again, the sermon for today, doesn't it? Jesus is with us even in the storms of life. How comforting that is. But now he, now he, he, he talks about this, this, uh, this aspect of the relationship of the unbelieving, of the unbelievers to, to the church. And so that's where he says, don't measure that outer court because it's been given to the Gentile. Now here, the word Gentile is referencing unbelievers. It's not just non-Jews. Okay, another way to describe it would be in the Old Testament talked about the nations. All right. And whenever the Bible talked about the nations, it was talking about the unbelieving, the Canaanites, the, the Philistines, the Babylonians, all those who uh, would uh, worship other gods. And so notice what he says about how the church will be impacted by unbelievers. Even though God is in charge and God is there for us, we will experience a lot of what Paul talked about in terms of hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, kind of you name it, it's going to happen. And yet it's going to happen for a certain period of time and then no more. So that's the meaning of these uh, these numbers, 42 months, 1,260 days. In other words, it's a long time, but it has a definite beginning and it has a definite ending. And so what he's saying is, is that the church, the believers, have a mission to do, and that is to be witnessing, right? Witnessing all through this, that we're not going to let this the present sufferings, the momentary afflictions, the difficulties and calamities of life. We're not going to let that get in the way of the witness that we have to offer as we are clothed in sackcloth. What's the phrase mean? Clothed in sackcloth. That's the Old Testament. It comes right out of the Old Testament, Bob. Yeah, that whenever there was a, a message of repentance, a message of, of mourning for sin, a, a mention for the unrighteousness that we have and the need that we have for what God offers, the prophet would wear sackcloth and, and put ashes all over himself as an uh, uh, indication of that. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add that this relates back to Ezekiel and relates back to Moses right. and relates back to Elijah. That's where it all goes. And so we're going to see that imagery uh, for sure. But take a look at Zechariah 4 at the bottom, 2 and 3, and 11 to 14, because we see a link to uh, the, the witnesses, the olive trees, and the lampstands. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And there also are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? 
And again, I asked him, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out the golden oil? He replied, do you not know who the, what these are? No, my Lord, I said. He said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord all the earth. So see, again, it's very, very, lots of imagery there, right? Lots of symbolism there. And we think, oh, what was that talking about? But the idea here is, is that the lampstands and the olive trees and, and everything that's offered is talking about the opportunity that we have to give witness in the midst of life struggles, not that somehow we have to wait until life struggles are over with before we can witness. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it, the fact that we have struggle, in fact, gives us a context in which we can say we share life with others, even with unbelievers. We share life together. But the difference is that the perspective we have is one of joy and gratitude and the fact that we know we're loved. When you know you're God's beloved and nothing in terms of the ups and downs of life can change that or will change that, that gives you the perspective that takes you through the difficulty. And so then as Bob pointed out, the, the, uh, the uh, alluding to this, the power to shut up the heavens so it won't rain and, and turn the water into blood and, and plagues and things. We see that uh, on the top of the next page. That it reminds us of who? Elijah's, uh, Elijah and Moses and Zerubbabel and, and Joshua. That, that it links back to the power of God that was at work through the work of these prophets. And again, the imagery is is that even when life is difficult, God appoints you and me to be his witnesses and that we will never be without the presence of the word. We could lose everything in this life, but the word of the Lord remains forever because the word of the Lord is in us, is it not, right? Now, if I don't share the word of the Lord with people around me, right? If the church isn't doing the work of sharing the gospel with people, if we're not going to administer the sacraments because we're too afraid of what might happen to us if we did that, then the possibility is at least the message, not the word, but the message dies in our generation. So we can't afford for that to happen. See, we keep talking, we keep sharing, we keep administering. And so Psalm 119, 105 reminds us that your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Okay, with me so far? Verse 7. Now when they, now who's the they? The church, the witnesses, right? When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. So all of you that thought you wanted to be the witnesses, okay. <laughs> Sorry, we are all the witnesses, right? Okay. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. 
because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. All right. Now we're introduced to the beast. Okay. We're going to see in Revelation 13 that the beast is re- references Antichrist. So we'll be thinking about what that is and we'll look historically at sort of each era in church history of what each sort of theologian thought the beast was or who the beast was or what the beast stood for. But at least at this point, we know that it's an enemy of the gospel. That we know. And so notice the beast is restrained by God. What clue do you get in the, in the text? What clue do you get of that being restrained? They finished their testimony. That's correct. Notice, when they finish the testimony, then the beast comes up. Isn't that nice to know? See, the beast doesn't have free reign. The Antichrist does not have ultimate power over God and the earth and the church. It's according to God's plan and according to God's timing. That tells us who is in charge. God is in charge. Satan is not in charge. So then he references that the, he will, the, the witnesses will be killed. Again, I'm looking at this thinking it's not just two. I'm looking at this as being uh, indicative of, of the church, all right? And so some in the church will be killed in terms of because of the witness they are giving off. And then the bodies lay in the public square of the great city, which is called Sodom and Egypt. So what is it that Sodom and Egypt had in common? They're both Old Testament referenced cities. And there was one important thing that, that they had in common. Do you know what it is? <laughs> yeah, Egypt wasn't destroyed though, so that's not exactly one of the things that was in common. Yeah, the idolatry uh, that was present and part of the way people live their lives. So we know from, uh, from Old Testament history that Egypt was uh, Pharaoh-centric. Now they had their, their own divinities, uh, the, the false gods that they would worship, but the big one was Pharaoh himself. The, the belief was that Pharaoh is divine. He himself is divine. And so uh, that sort of me first idea of worshiping uh, another divinity besides God, that was uh, all about Egypt. And then in, in, in Sodom, the me first was still there, right? But it showed itself up in uh, sins of idolatry connected to sexuality, okay? So the thing that they both had in common was, was that they were all about self and not about God. And so you really get this, um, it, what comes across is this disdain for the witness that the church would give off disdain. I mean, the, the, notice the imagery. The beast kills the witnesses, and then their, lo, their bodies lie in the public square, and nobody even bothers to bury them. It's such a disdain for and a disgust of. But what it tells you is the way that the world looks at the gospel. The way that the world views those who preach and teach and promote the gospel. And notice again that disdain shows up in verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth gloat over them. 
and celebrate by sending each other gifts because these prophets, the, the witnesses, had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, how do Christians torment unbelievers? We tell the truth. They don't say anything. Pardon? They don't say anything. They don't say anything. That's tormenting, isn't it? Why is truth so offensive? Because it shows you up for what you are. It kind of does that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, you, we could even just take, let's just pick one aspect of truth, okay? Uh, we talked about the Ten Commandments last week. Let's do that again. Let's just go through that, okay? You're feeling pretty good about yourself today, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, let's just go through the commandments. Let's see, let's see which one, you know, might, you know, talk to us a little bit about ourselves. And especially on Father's Day, I think this is a good day to feel good about yourself and and enjoy all the things that you've done for your families over the years, that kind of thing, all right? So let's see, what's that first commandment again? What is that again? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, let's skip that one. Let's go to the next one. Uh, what's the next one? The second one, don't, don't use the Lord's name in vain. In vain doesn't mean that only if you, like, you curse or swear. It's also just that you use it in a kind of casual way, kind of uh, indifferent Okay, we'll skip that one. Let's go to the third one. Remember the Sabbath day? Oh, now we're here on Sunday. We can feel pretty good about ourselves today, right? Yeah, we sure can. Um, so uh, while you were sitting in church this morning, those of you that were, were you totally focused 100% of the time the whole time on the sermon? Yeah, I know you were focused. I, I'm, I'm asking what you were focused. So you see, that, that's a good example of exactly what God's law does is it shows us how we are. And who of us wants to know really the truth about how we are? Okay, as an example. All right. So when you stand for truth today, people get automatically offended because they feel that somehow you're calling them out and you're showing them up. When in fact, that's part of what the word does. Now, why does the word do that? Because the word does that, does that for us too. Why, does, what, why is that? To make us look bad, to make us feel bad about ourselves, to make us feel like we're worthless and we're totally unloved and all that. Is that why the word does that? So that what? Yeah, so that our hearts will be receptive to hearing the opposite of that, which is the gospel, that God so loved us that he gave his only son to die for us and that through him we have forgiveness and eternal life. That's what it's about. Yeah. Somebody had their hand up. Yeah, Eddie. I just had a question about the number of three and a half. Uh-huh. Because in the second verse, uh, we heard that David trampled on the Holy City for 42 months. Yeah. Which is three and a half years. Right. Now we have this other three and a half days. Mm-hmm. So the, the reference that I, I looked at up in one of my commentaries that I used for um, the study, and the suggestion is, is that it's looking at resurrection. So because part of the, what we have so far is just death, okay? Now in the next section, we'll, there'll, be, there'll be resurrection. So if you think in terms of resurrection of life after death, the first place we look is it, it, in terms of Jesus. 
So it's a, it's a little bit inaccurate in terms of the uh, years as opposed to the days, but the linkage of three would, would, would suggest to us that we're talking about resurrection, not until we get to the next page, okay? We're still on this page, so, okay, good. Some of you are reading ahead. I mean, <laughs> really? Okay. All right, so a couple things here. All right, so the note that I have under Sodom and Egypt, I just want to make that, uh, make real clear. Note that from God's perspective, idolatry and sexual immorality are synonymous. Why is that? We we would look at it and say, oh, they're two different things. But from God's perspective, they're synonymous. They go together. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament and somewhat in the New Testament, there was a lot of temple prostitution that went on in the religious life. Okay, so that makes sense. But why is, in a bigger sense, why would they be synonymous from God's perspective? Because they both reveal an idolatry that says what I want in life is the only thing that matters, not what uh, other people, not caring about other people, it's all about me. Okay, that's, that's where that comes from. They each flow from the same source, which is a rejection of God as creator, that's first article of the Apostles' Creed, and as Lord of your life. And so we're familiar with Romans 1, 18 to 25, but I want to kind of hit that again. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So can people today claim legitimately there is no God? No, they claim it. But you can't make that legitimate argument because of the fact of the world that we live in and the creation that God has given to us. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That is the most offensive thing in the world today. What I just read. And some people in Christendom have t are taking this and saying, well, that doesn't apply to us today because that was written by St. Paul. It wasn't written by Jesus, and so we can disregard that. Okay? That's what happens when you take God's truth and you start dividing it out in terms of what is truth and what is not truth, what is God's word and what is not God's word. So from our Lutheran perspective as Christians, we, we hold to this uh, sense, this, this conviction that all of God's word is God's truth. All of God, all of the Bible, all the scriptures is God's word. Yes, ma'am, you have been so patient. Oh, I just don't know if I should say anything or not. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> I like to hear what you're saying. Yeah, don't say it. Yeah, I'm just kidding. 
say. The problem I've found in talking to people is that whose truth are we talking about? <laughs> Everybody's truth is different. And I, I, you know, God's truth. You have to go back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to talk to people, I have found, in this new world yeah. that we're living in. Yeah. I think that... Um, I just think we're not prepared for the blowback that we get. Yeah. And I think that we could do ourselves and the world some good if we would think about how I'm going to respond when I get rejected as opposed to just going in kind of naively or a little bit adamantly and then here comes the blowback. Okay. Yeah, my big problem is I assume that we're all on the same page. <laughs> That's correct. And we're not. We're not on the same page. That's right. The, the other thing is, is that I actually think that we're way more effective face-to-face, one-on-one, and social media is the worst place to try to do this. Because if you do it on social media, you will get jumped from people you don't know or people you do know, which is worse. And then what happens is blood pressure goes up, and now it's not God's truth that I'm going to spout, but it's how dare you say that to me, and oh yeah, I'll show you, and I'll raise you one verse, and you know, now we're getting into to, uh, verse, uh, verses of the Bible, darts with each other. So managing yourself is a big part, I think, of retaining an effective witness. And that's maybe where some of the problem is, too. Some of it, too, is um, biblical literacy. People today are notoriously illiterate with the Bible or will only pick and choose a part of a verse, not even the whole verse. The classic example is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, that's only part A of a greater section but people quote that and say, well, then you Christians, you're guilty of the very thing that you're saying that we shouldn't do. So part of it is you got to be versed in what you're going to talk about. And a little bit of a sense of having the, the message down that you're wanting to deliver at the same time that you make it about the person you're with instead of just making it about being right. Sometimes wanting to be right and wanting to look right gets in the way, doesn't it? Okay, does that, I don't know if that helps or not, but, it, but I think we actually have more opportunity one-on-one -on -one, uh, in, in face-to-face, nowadays anyway, now that we're kind of uh, emerging. Um, have you noticed that uh, as we're coming out of COVID, people are kind of grumpy? Have you noticed that? Or any of you a little bit? I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that, and I'm thinking that we're, we're like these... Uh, the, this, this herd of bears coming out of hibernation, you know, we've been in the cave for 15 months and we're kind of looking around and maybe we're a little hungry and maybe we're just wanting to, you know, engage. And, and it's been a while since we've been civil because we've all been sort of cooped up in, uh, in, that, in those caves with each other. Okay. Any other thoughts on this up to this point? Okay. Again, again, the message of the Romans 1 here is... It's not just the failure to acknowledge God as creator. It's the refusal. And that's what he says there in that very first verse, who suppress the truth. 
who suppress the truth. That's a whole different ballgame than somebody who said, well, I didn't even know what, I didn't know the truth. There's a knowledge of it and a refusal to believe it. Okay? And that's offensive. Uh, and so you kind of get some sense of these witnesses are saying that in the world, and the world is reacting by saying, you are tormenting us. You are not being compassionate. You are, you are not being empathetic. You are not being understanding. You are not agreeing with me. And we would say, you're right. You're correct. Let's see. Top of the next page, last page. We shouldn't be surprised at this treatment of Christians as Jesus prepared us to expect. John 15, 18 to 21. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. We shouldn't be surprised, but we kind of are. I think some of it is, is because if we lived in communist China or some other place, where there has been a long history of the persecution of Christians, we kind of would say, well, hello, that's how it's always been. But I think we live in America where this is a relatively new thing for us, at least in terms of the church. And we're going, uh, it seems like it just changed overnight. So I think that's part of it for us. Okay, well, let's go to verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Okay, so now we have what? A resurrection, don't we? There's a resurrection that comes out of the, the, the death and the disdain in the way in which the, the witnesses were treated by the world. But now we have God who enters back into the picture and gives to, that, to the witnesses the gift of life. So what that says, see, in terms of the Christian church and the witness that we have to offer is that the beast and the devil and the world does not get the final word. God gives to us the gift of life, starting with Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection on judgment day. And so there's this imagery, you see, of going up to heaven in a cloud. And we look at 1 Thessalonians, and then Amanda, I'll, I'll answer your question. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Pretty awesome, huh? Yeah. Gee, that'll be neat to see that happen. Hmm? Yeah, Amanda, you had your hand up. It wasn't so much a question, but I will go with Steve. 
So when you're reading John 15, 
Or maybe I'll drink something or take something or do something, and that way I don't at least temporarily have to feel it or experience it. The problem is it always comes back. But the eternal perspective changes that. It changes it. And that's what we hold on to. And that's what the Word keeps saying to us again and again. Yes, the book of Revelation is very hard to stomach when you think about all these woes that are happening on the earth. Some of which maybe happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. Maybe some of it's happening now. But what you and I, we're not... This isn't, this isn't where our citizenship is. Eternity is where we belong. Oh, that'll, that'll keep you going. Okay, that's good stuff. All right, let's look at the very end here. Verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God in heaven. The second woe is past, and the third woe, this is like a movie deal, the third woe is coming soon, right? <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. Remember back in Revelation 9, where the, all this terrible stuff happened, and it made no dent in terms of how the unbelievers felt toward God. Now we see a conversion occurring. We see a change. Why this time? Why? I do not know. So, but nonetheless, maybe they're seeing the light that it's not something that they can do anything about and they better get right with God. Okay? Because the Greek there gave glory to the God in, in heaven. The Greek word there, edokon doxon, is actually means genuine conversion as opposed to lip service. And so that's what that's what we see is there is a repentance among some of the, uh, of the survivors. Interesting. In some sense, God's purpose gets achieved then because that was the, his whole point anyway, right? Is that people come back to him. Okay, closing thoughts for today. Marv, you've been very quiet today. Since you called on me, I had a thought at the beginning. Yeah. When you first started out, it's like... We go through, as human beings, we go through all these trials, tribulations, and challenges in our life, all the negative stuff we fear in the world. Yeah. But it seemed to me you're, the bottom line is keep your eye on the prize, keep your eye on the gift we have coming to yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, St. Paul talks a lot about that idea of running the race that's marked out for us and keeping our eyes on the finish line, right? Eternity is the finish line. This life is not the finish line. But for people that don't believe, they would say, well, that's, that's all there is. You know, you live your life and that's it. Well, they'll be in for a big surprise. Okay? And again, not to say that, it, I mean, it's, I sounded kind of flippant there, but, but it, 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 it's a big surprise. It's a big surprise. So let's do what we can to not just stand for the truth and, and say, oh, we have the truth, we have the truth, but let's do something with it. Huh? And make it part of how we live our lives and, and what we, how we conduct ourselves in such a way to be, to, to be living that truth and then sharing that truth as well. Okay, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your truth. It's not just truth for truth's sake, 
but it's, it means that that's what we can stand on. That's, that's what our lives depend on. And it's our lives, not just in this life, but it's in our life, in the life that's yet to come. So Lord, we, we celebrate that. We're, we're so grateful for that. And that's what gives us a sense of joy, even when life is up and down, and sometimes it feels more down than up. Help us to be there for each other when life is down and when life is up so that we can encourage one another and share the good news that we have in Jesus and the assurance that we're not alone and the assurance that we are still your beloved. Dear Lord, I pray that you would be with each one here today and especially as we go our separate ways into this week. Watch over us and bless us. Give us opportunity to share the good news and open our hearts and our eyes to the opportunities that are there as we uh, live out your truth each and every day. Watch over us this day until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.